0: legal podcast for people who didn't study Latin in college. I'm your host, James Zabdorf. I'm not a lawyer, but my co-hosts, Micah Chetta and John Gardner are. Before we begin, I want to remind you that this is an educational podcast only. We are only offering our opinion and not legal advice. The individual facts of each case differ dramatically and cannot be covered in a short form podcast. If you think something we say is relevant to your legal situation, you should seek the advice of a licensed attorney. But not all the way it is time to tell you our opinions our full opinions and nothing but our opinions welcome to armchair justice uh, we're so glad you could be with us
1: today um, unfortunately Mike Chetta is not uh, with us he is uh, is unavailable um, we would like to mention to one of our listeners who uh, may have an interest in his future relationship that Mike Chetta is a outstanding citizen a uh, great moral character Um, heartily recommend him for any interests he may currently have in any particular person Um, and we of course will let Micah uh, pay us later you know it's amazing how much lawyers make these days and they can just fork over money for endorsements for random things
2: What, what a good guy a, diligent, a <laughs> diligent, godly man. Let's see if I can get a little
1: in on that endorsement yeah. <laughs> action, too. <laughs> no. We love you, Micah. Uh, he's obviously not with us, but um, today we have two interesting topics we want to cover. Um, one has to do with AR-15s, which is, of course, every conservative's dream to talk about, and the other one has to do with Nazis taking ancient artifacts away from 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 the community uh, and yeah it's I'm trying to make this into an Indiana Jones reference but I really can't uh, this is actually a case arising out of uh, in the Supreme Court about international law arising because the Nazi government took um, took possessions of a Jewish a group of Jewish people uh, who had a museum and the question before the Supreme Court was, could the Supreme Court even hear this case? Again, we come back to all our old friend standing. Does the, uh, the, do we have standing? So, uh, the, I'm going to start there with, with this case, John, and just ask, you know, we know about our, our standing for common cases here in the United States. jurisdiction is the proper court we have um is there harm involved and everything else what's what's kind of the the international take on standing uh when can i sue another country um as is happened here in republic of germany or federal republic republic of germany versus phillips
2: yeah so uh at issue here is the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act, or FSI. <laughs> I won't. I won't say that again. <laughs> but uh, that generally allows for spe- very specific situations and exceptions when uh, someone can sue a foreign country in a United States court, and so. Uh, Here, um, the the theory that's being presented is that uh, property was taken in violation of international law. And so, the idea here is Congress passed this FSIA um, that basically gave United States citizens the ability to sue foreign governments or foreign states when they take their property in violation of international law.
1: So, why couldn't I just sue, you know, a foreign foreign government as a common citizen of the United States? Why is that not allowed? Well,
2: that's a surprisingly complicated question. Uh, but I think the short of it is... Uh, statecraft as it's called you know the diplomacy and relations of of the United States to the rest of the world is generally something that we leave to the executive branch this is what the president does and he delegates that authority to uh, our diplomats in the State Department uh, you know his military attaches across the across the world and, you know, other various law enforcement agencies that also have uh, international breadth, like, for example, the FBI. And <clears throat> so the idea is you just don't want any Tom, Dick, and Harry being able to sue uh, a government of another country. And as such, when Congress passed this act, it o- it created very limited circumstances in which a United States c- citizen could sue uh, another country in the United States
1: reminds me of the uh, the quote from John Marshall um, that the that and I'm going to just paraphrase because it's not um, coming to the top of my head. I read it last night in the the Wisdom of the Supreme Court from the University of Press of of uh, Oklahoma, a great book published in 19. 19- 70s, um, but it quoted Justice John Marshall saying that um, foreign power foreign relations is the providence of the executive officer alone. Um, and you know it, it makes sense uh, that what might be illegal here may be legal in another country. so how do we how do we balance those those regularities? So in what cases, though, am I allowed, you know, if it's a violation of international law, I guess, what's, what's kind of the limitations on that international law? Is there categories of international law that I'm allowed that, that, that give me the ability to sue another foreign nation? And what's the, what's the theory here? Why, why did this, the Supreme Court, the most uh, powerful court, why did it waste its time? on a lawsuit that, you know, suing another country and are trying to apply our laws to it.
2: Yeah, so uh, I think here what might be helpful in answering this question is to get into a little bit more of the facts of what the plaintiffs here are alleging. And here, uh, these are the heirs of, uh, uh, of a art consortium that existed in Germany uh, at the during the waning years of the Weimar Republic. So this is literally um, kind of as the Nazis were coming to power in Germany, and these uh, this art consortium owned these ancient relics from the Holy Roman Empire, uh, known as the welfen shots this is when i wish we had micah because i think he has he knows some german or the the correct pronunciation but the idea being priceless historical artifacts that are kind of integral to german culture and before the nazis had taken power uh, this art consortium had been selling some of these relics to um, countries all over the world, including the United States, where some of them are in Cleveland, Ohio. But uh, when the Nazis took over, uh, one of the chief uh, Nazi Nazi officers became interested in in getting these artifacts as a piece of German history, and therefore the plaintiffs allege that the this officer forced or coerced them to sell these artifacts to the nazis and the plaintiffs say that this was an act of genocide under international law and as such would give them standing to sue in a united states district court now germany says look this isn't an act of genocide Uh, this at best is considered a domestic taking which is to say this is a dispute within Germany, so international law doesn't apply. Um, And I think that's how we kinda get a a circle back to the answer to your question, and that might lodge us into a discussion of what the scope of international law is in relation to domestic law, but we'll
1: see. I know there are, um, oftentimes a lot of questions that arise around the idea of, you know, uh, even power to enforce a judgment, um, you know, how does that happen? So if, if, if I'm as a, you know, let's say I sue, sue the Federal Republic of Germany. Well, the Federal Republic of Germany has already said, um, as the case law points out, has already said no. This is not. Uh, you do not deserve these relics back. Um, how would I? How would the Ameri- How would America force Germany to to hand over something that they disagree? They owe because I mean, Germany is a for is a is a sovereign nation. They're not beholden to the Supreme Court. I mean, it's not like uh, uh, justice. John Roberts is gonna hold Angela Merkel in contempt of court and drag her to jail <laughs> send over the FBI her and bring her back to the United States
2: soil just, just send Liam Neeson
1: yeah there we go well I,
2: I think your point raises you know uh, what the tensions that we see in what is a, a well cited but off misunderstood concept in the law which is jurisdiction. You know, what is the scope of a court's authority? That's what jurisdiction is. And there are different ways of rooting jurisdiction. Traditionally, jurisdiction is rooted by territory, which is to say the boundaries of the region that the court sits. So you've got a Supreme Court of South Carolina, of Indiana... Of Virginia, you know the various states all have their own courts, and these courts have only the authority to enforce their uh, respective court, uh, respective law on their respective citizens of their state. And so we can extrapolate that out to international law as well. We have the United States, Germany, France, other kind of state actors. Where the same law. Or jurisdiction uh, applies. And there are, of course, instances in which one state infringes upon the rights of another. And that is where we get into international law and ergo F- FSIA.
1: I think, as I understand it, it's, it's usually referred to as this uh, the Sovereign Immunities Act. You just drop the foreign part because it's just too cumbersome. Ah. Cumbersome. Yeah.
2: Sovereign Immunities Act. There we go.
1: I could be completely wrong, but you know.
2: That's my life. Hey, these are just our opinions. That's what the disclaimer said in the beginning.
1: It's, it's true. Do not <laughs> sue me. I am what most people refer to as judgment proof. <laughs> Actually, probably not anymore, but
2: But <laughs> I I think what's interesting here is uh this wraps in the a notion that is called comity. Or comedy. Com- comedy comedy yeah. c-o-m-i-t-y comedy and the idea is is that one sovereign will respect the decision of another sovereign over things within its own jurisdiction so as much as South Carolina might have an issue with whatever is going on in California South Carolina does not have much to say other than mere words It certainly has no actionable sort of legal theory um to overturn or undermine what california is doing now where does that stop well that stops if say california does something to injure south carolina Mm -hmm. and so that's what the plaintiffs here are alleging is they're saying look um we've been injured in such a fashion under the sovereign immunities act allow us to sue the state of Germany because this was an act of genocide and Germany saying no internal dispute one and then I think two, interestingly they had two separate investigations into the historical events that took place and both of them found that these artifacts were sold for the fair market value and without coercion so that kind of nips
1: the plaintiff's claims yeah. in, in the in bud. In the bud, yeah, it been in the bud. And I, I guess then it's no surprise that the Supreme Court essentially said today, said not today, they made the ruling that it is just an internal taking, um, and an internal matter, not a matter of genocide. Um, and and ruled in favor of the Federal Republic of Germany. And also in a similar case, they ruled, citing the same day, citing this case, they ruled in favor of Hungary. Um, and I don't know what the citation on that, that case is, but they basically said we rule in favor of Hungary, see our opinion in Federal, Federal uh, Republic of Germany versus Phillips. I'm going to transition to the next topic for tonight. Um, this is kind of just touching on a discussions we had about um about Heller versus DC and now President Biden has come out with his uh gun uh, was on the 14th of February came out with his gun control agenda on the gun control agenda was were three items according to the press release you know of course these things always tend to get hashed out. Um, first one is universal background checks. The second one was a high capacity fire a high capacity magazine ban. And the third one was a uh, assault rifle ban. So given those three items, I thought it might be fun as uh, us conservatives, Having now newly minted legal scholars in uh, Second Amendment issues, having you know thoroughly examined Heller versus D.C. and McDonald versus Chicago and Miller versus the United States, I think it's the United States. Um, We know we know the answers. We we should lend our help to uh, President Biden and and help him create constitutional laws in this case so on those three items i want to ask you if you could pass is there any way to make those three items because they're very broad we don't know what the flesh is going to look like i mean we could always talk about it so how would you make those things constitutional Let's start with universal background checks
2: hey uh, that's a tough one there uh, but before I get to these 30 I I will throw in what I think is might be the most interesting one that is oh, actually a number four I did not okay so uh, the press the press statement says today I am calling on Congress to enact quote common-sense gun law reforms including background checks on all gun sales banning assault weapons and high capacity magazines and what i think is very interesting or or the most kind of legally uh questionable and eliminating immunity for gun manufacturers who knowingly put weapons of war on our streets so here's if i had to give a bill of health on which of these would be the most constitutionally problematic i would say background checks is probably the most problematic uh assault weapons has the potential of being the least problematic Hmm. now this depends on how they define obviously assault weapons i think this is where there's much consternation on the side of conservatives of well what do you mean you know and the the lines that are often drawn by uh, uh, liberals and progressives are so squishy and ambiguous that it it captures things that it shouldn't and it includes things that yeah. it, it ought
1: my favorite <laughs> you know? is, is is Feinstein's bill that explicitly banned the Ruger Mini Ranch tactical and explicitly permitted the Mi- Ruger Mini Ranch, Ranch version,
2: <laughs> like
1: functionally the same weapon. Just one has a adjustable bump, adjustable stock.
2: Yeah, uh, the high capacity magazines. This this uh, this really doesn't do anything for me. I, I I think they could have some success with that, mm-hmm. and then. I think the one that they would have the strongest go at would be this tort immunity, eliminating this tort immunity. And it pains me to say that because I'm a defense attorney and I work some in products liability. So it pains me to think that uh, a manufacturer uh, could be, you know, this immunity could be stripped and have a bunch of plaintiff's attorneys... Trying to follow suit on every single gun, you know, case mm-hmm. of gun violence. Um,
1: but but what what are rules of proximity start coming into to play? Like but for causation or proximate cause. I mean, it. You don't sue Budweiser for um, every DUI. That doesn't happen, you know. Every. Uh, it it doesn't make sense to me that you would be able to sue uh, Remington because their shotgun was used in a
0: murder.
2: Yeah, and if I had to put my plaintiff's cap on, you know, and kind of um, argue devil's advocate, the the position I, I believe, if I give it chari- you know, a charitable interpretation, is that. Um, You know, you you can design a weapon in such a way that it really serves no other purpose than what could be considered a a tactical or assault purpose. You know, it's it's not necessarily for hunting, it's not necessarily for home defense, but it's got 30 rounds that it can fire at high velocity that generally is akin to, you know, what we send our troops out with. Now does it does that overcome the obvious kind of legal counter argument that you you raised about uh, what what's known as an intervening will? You know, generally you can't hold me responsible for the decision or the will of another person unless I'm in some special relationship to that person, right? Mm-hmm. Like I I can't He held responsible for what Micah does. He's a good friend of mine, but that doesn't put me in a special relationship. Right. Now, my dog, I am responsible for what my dog does, (laughs) because that thing, she's a little piranha, and she'll bite just about anything, and because I own my dog, you know, it's my responsibility to make sure she doesn't bite someone or anything like that.
1: Well, it it would make sense to say if... You know, if I handed if I handed you a firearm, if I handed you a handgun and said go kill this guy, and you go and kill him, like this might be uh, why we have RICO laws, but you know, <laughs> that's that's pretty clear and shut. I should be held responsible for the murder, mm-hmm. in but, addition to you. But you're just,
2: so but, I think I, I, I think here the reason why I think the last one has the strongest legs even though I think it's dead wrong, the reason why I think it has the strongest legs is because uh, tort law generally is a, a consensus of the will of the people. They Tort law will take in public policy and incorporate it into the law like nothing else. We saw this, for example, with drug ma- manufacturers. And traditional tort law categories made it so proving the causation of some of these adverse side effects of drugs that happened 20 or 30 years later was so complicated and complex that it was nearly impossible for those who were legitimately injured by these drugs to recover against these pharmaceutical manufacturers. So what did what did a lot of state and uh, congresses do that, uh, or state legislatures do. Well, they amended the tort law in their state to give specific standing. You know, whether it be for asbestos or opioids mm-hmm. or you know all these sorts of things where it they, these causation issues routinely happen. Maybe we would see something similar with guns and gun manufacturers.
0: So then, my next question
1: is. And I was surprised that he didn't necessarily call out the ending of um, financial, you know, uh, the government has a right to say, uh, to regulate interstate commerce. And one popular idea is to say that uh, you can't just deny credit card processing and banking to gun manufacturers because that involves interstate commerce. Um, You might have a dispute. Disparaging impact there, but um, I'm going to go now to this the assault weapons ban. And I know that in the 90s we had an assault weapons ban that expired in 2001, I believe, if I remember exactly correct. Um, uh, but since then, we've had both Heller versus DC and McDonald. And as we've discussed in Heller versus DC, and McDonald just applied Heller versus DC to the states. Two things. First, in Heller uh, you have a right to defend yourself with a firearm. It established your right um, to use a firearm in defense of yourself. Um, and, you know, in, in both cases, Heller and McDonald, we the, the Supreme Court said the state cannot issue, cannot get involved in erecting barriers to effective defense with a firearm. Uh, they cannot say you have to disassemble it in your home. So that was one thing. But also the other part that, that, that Heller did, it laid down this test. It said, hey, look, what does it mean by an arm, you know, in the Second Amendment? The arm, and as Scalia pointed out, Justice Scalia pointed out, an arm is any commonly available weapon that would be of military use, um, those are the two, the two prongs, right? It's a common, movie. and the AR-15 is the most popular rifle, at least by sales, uh, out there. So, couldn't you argue if this goes up in front of the Supreme Court, hey, the AR-15 should be excluded, explicitly excluded, because it fits those both of those, those criteria, right? It it was designed off of the M-16 and it's the most it's commonly available everyone has it's not like a a tank or a nuclear warhead right Mm -hmm. um it's available to the rest of us what what would be the government's uh response to that if you were to hazard a guess as a you know
2: Mm. i i i think that that the more that they can characterize this as a public health crisis and then ride the sort of increasing uh wave of public health consciousness if i can call it that concern especially Mm -hmm. around covid and the uh, ability of government to continually kind of overreach where i'm and i i say overreach in the sense of where it has traditionally exercised authority in that process and I think characterizing it as a public health issue as opposed to uh, a con a purely abstract constitutional right I think that's the the sort of best argument against it now do do I think that it will ultimately prevail no this is where I think having Amy Coney Barrett and Justice Kavanaugh uh, is going to start paying
1: dividends.
0: Yeah. And I mean, there are,
1: just from my perspective, you know, I I, um, I think there are issues that we should address with, from a public health perspective, with gun violence. I am not against us looking into that. Um, I personally think that the uh, that these type of legislative actions do more harm than good because they focus on the, the very minute cases instead of the, of the whole. It's like um, if you had an event where the ship was going down and there were, you know, 20 people trapped in the ship under the water and 200, 200 uh, people trapped, or 2,000 probably the right ratio, trapped on the surface of the water, you spend your entire search and ref- rescue effort saving the 20 people trapped under in the ship below to let the rest of them drown because, you know, this is where we need to get. And I, And I am all for saving lives where we can, but mental health seems to be. Uh, a bigger cause than what we define as mass mass casualty events, and these regi- and these le- legislative actions are designed to take care of mass casualty events.
0: The one question I had for you,
1: and I was kind of shocked that you said this, but the universal background check. Why do you think that is the most um, strong or the the the, the strongest? Or the most anti constitutional provision out there what's the what's your' thinking there? Because I would have guessed if I ranked them myself, I would have said that's one of the you know one of the weakest ones mm-hmm. the federal government should could have its own you know it already does a background check, so just expand that what's your what's your argument there
2: yeah so uh I think here uh i if you think it in pure abstract terms it doesn't seem to raise any issues but then when you start to think of practically what does a background check entail and what sort of red flags would they look for in a background check in order to designate somebody as one way or the other and i think and i'm i certainly could be mistaken but i think they they wouldn't be able to Write the legislation in such a way that at the end of the day it would not come down to a professional's decision, you know, either a doctor's decision or a psychiatrist's decision. And the issue is, is our fundamental liberties, uh, the scope of our fundamental liberties, are not determined in scope by medical professionals and it is not the uh you know medical profession whose authority it is to determine uh the limits of constitutional rights that's what lawyers do that's what judges do and i i think that unless you have um a a, you know a judge signing off on it on every single one, like a, like a warrant, essentially, uh, which then you get into kind of judicial economy issues and, you know, the already overburdened judicial system, such, such a program just couldn't, couldn't work under the constitution for that reason. Now, is there some way of identifying objective criteria? You know, uh, you have three aggravated domestic violence uh, you know uh, uh, convictions or you know you get one aggravated domestic violence conviction or you know, and we use that as determinations. Maybe there's a, a stronger case there. but I think at the end of the day to do it uh, uh, justice, <laughs> if I can use the cliche it would have to rely on the decision making of of uh, a professional and that i don't, don't think would work
1: interesting so i kind of expected you to say something about the 4th amendment here and unreasonable searches and seizures and how this would be a broad you know would be a broad search but you seem to take it more in the re- the reins of our judicial rights our rights as citizens are the prov- providence of the, the legal system not the medical system
2: yeah and i think i i well, i mean maybe i'm a little biased i think it makes sense
1: yeah are, we have attorneys
2: that's that's what the whole legal profession is is studied and designed so. to do is is to figure out what are these rights now the other thing and maybe i'll i'll take a little personal soapbox here for just a moment I think one thing that's lost in much of these discussions is an understanding of where the right is generated from, right? Mm -hmm. Um, in, In some sense, you get a lot of conservatives who go, man, this Constitution is my Bible, and because it is written there, it is true, and in some sense, that's true, but when you That isn't the full truth. That isn't the kind of plethora of truth. The reality is is that self-defense, the ability to arm and defend oneself is rooted in what I would call natural law. And I think this has been observed by many people. If If you run at a mama bear and she's got bear cubs around her, you know for certain that that bear is going to attack you. You know, this desire to defend oneself and those closest to, to us is ingrained in the very natural order of how the world works. And I think that that is the foundation upon which the Constitution recognizes our right to bear arms is an extension of that. And mm-hmm. so is when we get lost in the abstract sort of discussions, we lose that sense of look the schizophrenic even as as crazy as this person might be as understood by society has no less the right than the 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 academic professor or you know knowledgeable learned man so because we don't see distinctions in in Mm -hmm. in uh animal kingdom of the schizophrenic mama bear and the non-schizophrenic mama bear they all will defend themselves you know
1: so And,
0: and it's and
1: it's one thing that i like to point out when talking about rights like this you know if you read through the um Federalist Papers, a big point about their discussion about the rights was, look, what we need to defend rights, not, we don't need to defend the the obvious rights, the rights that no one would ever consider taking away from you. Hence, in the first 10 amendments, it does not state you have the right to live. The government can't just kill you because it wants to kill you. But we all know if the government just decided to shoot its citizens, like, that is a international law violation and it's also a violation of our rights as human beings. The amendments that we have actually, at the time, were the founding fathers' incorporation of disputed rights. And they were settling once and for all how in America those rights would be Acknowledged. Now, so now most of those rights we have not we acknowledge as, you know, we, we we agree that with with the founding fathers, uh, the right to free speech is paramount. The right to free uh, freedom of the press very important. We don't disagree with them, but when it comes down to the Second Amendment, uh, there is. There is some debate as what as to whether the Second Amendment is good or not. And as Founding Fathers have settled that debate, they have said, you know what? The Second Amendment, your right to own our weapon, is your fundamental right. Is your right. And you cannot, that cannot be infringed upon by the government. We settle it. And, by the way, if you want to change this, there's a process for that. It's called... An amendment. you can amend the amendment and just take it away
2: well i I can't put it better than that i I think you've laid out the process well. I will leave with one practical slightly uh uh I don't know pessimistic is the right word, but it, I think it's something I don't hear much in this discussion, and that's this right now. You know, you, you hear a lot about this statistic that there are more guns in the United States than there are people, you know. And and usually somebody who owns a gun doesn't just have one gun. They have several guns. Why do I bring this up? Well, that is an insurance policy on our national defense. What What do I mean by that? Look, when, when we, I say the United States government, tried to go into Pakistan and get a few thousand terrorists, this took tens and millions of dollars, tens of thousands of troops over t- a decades of, of armed conflict, over a handful, you know, relatively, of, of people with weapons now think of the united states with its expansive land one of the largest geographic you know uh countries in the world and it has way more guns than than you know pakistan with its terrorists so what i'm trying to illustrate there is it protects us from our foreign enemies because the you know the cost of you know really waging war is so high so if i'm a foreign adversary what i want is a bunch of americans to say nope i don't need my guns anymore so then you know they they can line themselves up now should i be thinking like that i don't know but i think that is a consideration that i don't hear much in this
1: discussion so well
2: there's, it, there's my two cents
1: and certainly as you read the federalist Papers was the consideration of the Federalists, the people who wrote the Constitution. You know, they said, an effective defense against a standing army, whether that be a domestic standing army or a foreign standing army, is an armed militia.
0: Thank you for listening to Armed Justice. It's truly been a privilege to have you as a listener. Please subscribe or follow and leave us a review when you do. John Gardner and Micah Cheddar are your co-hosts. The intro and exit music was Cats Searching for Truth by Nat Keith and Art Flutter Rump. I'm James Labador, your host. Thank you for tuning in.